This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program, our 502nd. I think we'll quit counting pretty shortly, but... uh... We did, we did have a lot of fun in our show number 500, and would refer you to our archives for that in case you missed it. Although we do think uh, show number 501, with our interview with Bob Berman, wasn't bad either. And we would cite as evidence for that a, an email we received from Joseph, who was evidently checking out Radio Parallax for the first time. He said, nearly done listening to show 501. Loved it. Dude, you're really great at this. And very smart. A pleasure to listen to you. Cheers. And I must say, and I'm sure Mr. McMillan will agree with me, that um, it's those types of letters that keep us going. It's not easy uh, doing a weekly show that um, tries to be as comprehensive as we try to be. And I must say that uh, the battle with the old files is almost done, but didn't kill me. It did remind me of Nietzsche's statement that that which does not kill us makes us stronger. So I think I am feeling quite a bit stronger in fact, we hope to use some of those files on today's show as we, uh, as we talk about what's going on currently. But yet, uh, take a look back over the last 10 years at some of the files that we saved to see what we were saying back in, say, 2004. This will be interesting. And uh, a look back in time will be especially apropos for this program because in our second segment, we're going to take a look back at the year 1900 with author Jeff Nilsson of the Saturday Evening Post who uncovered a batch of predictions made by John Elfrith Watkins Jr. back at the beginning of the 20th century. As might be expected, he got quite a few things wrong, but he got an awful lot of things right. Anyway, that'll be fun in our second segment. Stay tuned for that. But let's begin today's show, as we like to do, with On This Date in History. The date in question being Groundhog Day, February 2nd. Uh, excuse me, Doug, how many R's are in February? I'm glad you brought that up. We do like to remind our listeners on a yearly basis that February has two R's and both are pronounced. But of course, as always, when someone says February, be diplomatic if you elect to correct them. Do not, for example, suggest they need to go to the library to check this out. And by the way, it is worth noting that uh, Groundhog Day is intended to commemorate the midpoint between the winter solstice and the vernal equinox, meaning that winter is half over. Of course, if you live in Northern California as we do, you would have to note that winter never arrived. Our temperatures and precipitation have been more reminiscent of Palm Springs, I think, uh, this, this December and January. Not so good if you like to ski. But interestingly, February 2nd in the year 1046 marks the first known observation of the beginning of the Little Ice Age, a 200-year period of exceptional cold. That observation appeared in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, stating no man alive could remember so severe a winter. On this date in 1848, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo was signed by the United States and Mexico, which ended the Mexican-American War and gave the Southwest of the United States to the United States. Although the American government did soften the highway robbery by giving the Mexicans $15 million. On this date in 1942, Nazi collaborator Vidkun Quisling was installed as leader of a puppet government in Norway. His surname, Quisling, has since entered the language as the name for one who aids the enemy. 
What I find most remarkable about his tale was that even though Norway had banned capital punishment, I believe, before World War II, they brought it back after Quisling was trialed just so they could execute him. On a happier note, in this date in 1990, South African President F.W. de Klerk legalized the African National Congress and pledged to free its imprisoned leader, Nelson Mandela, and later did. When we first began this program, we attempted to obtain F.W. de Klerk and Nelson Mandela to speak with us about uh, uh, what, what happened in South Africa. We Looks like we could have gotten de Klerk, but Nelson Mandela had stopped speaking publicly by that point. But you know what? We still may try and reach F.W. de Klerk sometime and talk about those epic events that saved South Africa from what many predicted would be a bloodbath. Our quote of the day comes from author William Gibson, who noted, The future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. What I find most curious about that quote is, although we are quoting The Week magazine, The Week got that from the Sacramento News and Review. Congratulations to our pals over at the Sacramento News and Review for uh, casting a uh, long enough shadow on the national scene now to be quoted by The Week. Oh, and speaking of the News and Review, we'd like to thank Rachel LeBrock for some of her kind words a couple weeks back. They were very kind indeed, and although modesty would prevent most people from quoting them, regular listeners to this program will no doubt attest to the fact that I am not necessarily all that modest. (laughs) To paraphrase KDVS's uh, Ed Martin, if one doesn't toot one's own horn, that horn may not get tooted. But to quote from the cool hunting section of the SNNR, noting Radio Parallax's 500th show, if you're not listening to Radio Parallax, now's the time to get acquainted with the region's most compelling radio hour. The show, which airs Thursdays at 5 p.m. on KDVS, typically covers a broad spectrum of topics that includes politics and film, literature, science, and just plain odd. We do our best to try and make this a compelling hour of local radio. The fact that at least some people would say it's the most compelling local hour, well, just makes us happy. But I must confess with some actual modesty that even during the week of our 500th show, I think we got equaled by, of all things, the Coast to Coast AM program. I was astonished uh, to tune in uh, late night and hear Greg Palace talking about uh, the BP oil spill and some of the other oil spills he's covered and doing a spectacularly good job. It's especially curious for me to note that this program airs on the Clear Channel Network, which is noted for its conservatism. I guess because he was on at midnight, they didn't care what Greg had to say. He's been on this show three or four times, and we will be bringing him back sometime in 2012. We do want to give a, an attaboy to substitute host George Knapp, I guess was filling in for a regular host George Nouri on Coast to Coast AM, which does tend to get a little bit overboard in the plain odd department. Anyway, our quip of the day comes from Jimmy Kimmel, who said recently, During a debate, Mitt Romney said he grew up in the real streets of America. Yes, the real streets where people pull up next to you and ask if you have any gray poupon. And we have two bonus quotes from our files. The first from Jay Garner, who said a couple years into our fiasco in Iraq, Vietnam took too long. If President Bush had been president, we would have won. Well, we're really not sure what Jay Garner's basing that upon. Despite those proclamations of mission accomplished back in May of 03, we're still there. And I don't know, Mr. McMillan, are you aware of any, any evidence that we've won? Done. Second quote from the archives comes from Ron Paul of Texas, who said during one of the debates back in 2008, 
Let me see if I get this right. We need to borrow $10 billion from China, and then we give it to Pakistan President Pervez Musharraf, who's a military dictator who overthrew an elected government, and then we go to war, and we lose all those lives promoting democracy in Iraq. Where have we gone? I think we've lost our way. On next week's program, I'm going to read from a, a rather long um, list of questions Ron Paul posed to the Bush administration before we began our war in Iraq. This dates back to 2002. And I'd say, say what you want about Ron Paul. He was on the money back then. In spite of his pie-in-the-sky libertarianism, he's still sometimes on the money. Another faux news item from our archives of many years ago, which is strangely apropos for today, is the following headline. Somali pirates refuse to board Carnival cruise ships. Subheadline, cite unsafe working conditions. If they wrote it today, they'd probably put, cite unsafe navigational procedures. Another headline we just can't resist from the archival files comes from The Onion. The headline is, National Machete Association speaks out against machete control legislation. All right, our stat of the day comes from the CBS News poll, which is that 58% of Republican primary voters say they want more presidential candidate choices than their current field. What I find a sad commentary on our political system is that we don't have a Democratic primary. Because I imagine there's a whole lot of Democrats who voted for Barack Obama who would like a uh, broader field. Actually, we have one bonus quip from um, listener Sharon, who did note uh, earlier this week, that uh, the difference between the Somali pirates and the pirates on Wall Street is that at least the Somali pirates have the good manners not to try and convince you that they're doing you a favor. And let us, uh, without any further ado, jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. It was a good week a couple weeks back for making a bold statement. In the wake of luxury cruise ship Captain Francesco Chettino's lawyer stating to newsmen soon after the crash, I'd like to say that several hundred people owed their life to the expertise that the commander of the Contra Concordia showed during the emergency. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for making a bold statement. In the wake of Francesco Chettino <laughs> telling police authorities that he hadn't deliberately abandoned ship, but said, quote, I tripped and ended up in one of the lifeboats, unquote. And it was an ugly week, actually a couple of years back. This one comes from our archives for making a bold statement. In the wake of financier Alan Stanford, accused by the Securities and Exchange Commission of running an $8 billion Ponzi scheme, remarking on the indignities of having to fly coach by saying, they make you take your shoes off and everything. It's terrible. Well, I guess now we know why he ran that $8 billion Ponzi scheme. The guy didn't want to fly coach. And I bet the lunch they served him didn't even have Grey Poupon. All right, and a bit of follow-up from our, uh, our talk last week with Bob Berman. We would note that the January 7, 2012 edition of New Scientist notes that a case of rickets recently surfaced in London. A disease from the Victorian era associated with vitamin D deficiency. Once the baby was diagnosed, it was found that his mother, too, suffered from a lack of vitamin D. 
And authorities in, in, in Britain think that some other cases of infant deaths may also be related to a lack of this vitamin. This dovetails with a study published by the U.S. Center for Disease Control, which found that only 5 to 13 percent of breastfed infants and 20 to 37 percent of formula-fed babies got enough vitamin D to meet the recommended daily dose of 400 international units. The article notes, too, that Ricketts is a profound case of vitamin D deficiency, and lack of this vitamin may cause a lot of other health problems, just as Bob Berman cited on the program last week. This matter does require some further investigation, so we will look into it. I also couldn't resist the item from the archives from last April, where uh, officials at Sutter Memorial were quoted as saying that the 45 babies born in the past 48 hours were undoubtedly attributable to the lunar effect of the full moon. What nonsense. And some other follow-up regarding the uh, recent appearance of Condoleezza Rice here in Sacramento. The Sacramento Bee published a rather critical letter from reader David Wright, who wrote, Regarding a conversation with Condoleezza Rice, living here January 9th, Condoleezza Rice and others of her administration make me so mad, and the Bee was oh so soft on her. Did she pre-select her questions? This critical question was missing. Dr. Rice, why did you condone and perpetuate the spread of lies about weapons of mass destruction that tipped our nation into a ruinous war in Iraq? Articles I pulled from the files, one from 10-2005, noted that uh, Condoleezza Rice was at that point not precluding the use of force against Iraq's neighbors, saying that Syria and Iran were supporting the Iraqi insurgency. Luckily, we didn't go down that road. I do hope that someone asked her some tough questions in her recent appearance here in town. Something tougher than her comments about how Stanford lost in the Fiesta Bowl on a redshirt freshman's two missed field goals in which she said, oh, I, I feel so bad for the kid. I, I really did. Yeah, how about the, the kids who got killed and maimed over in Iraq? I, ho- I hope she feels equally bad for them. And all this talk about pulling out of Iraq and asking, gee, was it worth it? I got a briefing article from the Week magazine dated May 9th, 2008, asking how much the war has cost so far. This is basically four years ago. At that point, it was $600 billion at $12 billion a month. There's a lot of folks quoting figures of $1 trillion and, and sometimes up to $3 trillion if you factor in Afghanistan as well, and you factor in the extended costs of taking care of all the people that were so severely injured in these uh, Central Asian fiascos. The thing that I find most irritating is a cover of the Week magazine from March 18, 2005, in the wake of a uh, public relations offensive by the Bush administration about how democracy was now beginning to sprout in the Middle East. The cover featured a really smug-looking George with a hoe out in the garden. Well, that was seven years ago, and no, it doesn't appear that uh, those sprouts have really, uh, really taken hold. Also from the Bad Prediction Department, we have Fortune magazine from 2003 that noted at the beginning of the war that uh, after Saddam, Iraq could lead an economic mini-boom in the region. Of course, they did qualify it, noting that that's if the war ends in two months or so. Well, in fact, it didn't end in two months or so. It outlasted the Vietnam War to become our longest-lasting war, except for the fact that the Afghanistan War is still going on, and, and it's firmly ensconced in first place. We hope the Federal Reserve's current prediction about full economic recovery taking, well, maybe three more years is a little pessimistic. recent article in the Sacramento Bee reprinted from the New York Times by Benjamin Applebaum about uh, a routine transcript released five years later about the Federal Reserve, their, uh, their meetings back in 2006. 
noted that as the housing bubble entered its waning hours, top Federal Reserve officials marveled at the desperate antics of home builders seeking to lure buyers. They laughed about the cars that the builders were offering as signing bonuses and about efforts to make empty homes look occupied. They joked about one builder who said the inventory was rising through the roof. But uh, the officials gave little credence to the possibility that the faltering housing market could weigh on the broader economy. One official, Susan Bice, even suggested that the housing downturn actually could bolster the economy by redirecting money into other kinds of investment. In the transcript, there's apparently general acclaim for Alan Greenspan, who had stepped down as chairman the beginning of that year. Timothy Geithner, then president of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, and now our Treasury Secretary, suggested that Greenspan's greatness still was not fully appreciated. Noted Applebaum, that was an opinion that's now held by a much smaller number of people. The article notes that by the end of uh, the following year, 2007, the Fed had launched a desperate struggle to prevent the collapse of the financial system and the onset of the nation's first full-fledged depression in almost a century. Boy, that's a word you don't hear very often, a depression. They keep talking about the recession we're in, but I'm glad to see somebody calling a spade a spade. The piece notes that the transcripts uh, show that... uh, Some of the nation's preeminent economic minds did not fully understand the basic mechanics of the economy that they were charged with supervising. But anyway, hey, don't worry. They say they were going to have a full economic recovery in in three years. Anyway, on a happier note, uh, apparently celebrity chef Paula Dean is going to appear in, in Sacramento at the Sacramento Community Theater tomorrow, February 3rd. I, know, I don't know much about Ms. Dean, but I understand she's known for her high-fat, high-sugar cooking style. Sandwiches, you know, made with donuts for bread and such. Well, apparently she acknowledged last week that she has been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. Although we would note that making a burger with a Krispy Kreme donut as a bun will not necessarily induce type 2 diabetes. If you make those a regular part of your diet, you're not doing yourself any favors. All right, let's take a short break, but I want to go out with some fun stuff. And although I want to... uh, say a few things about our president. I don't think I'll use Dan Moraine's uh, viewpoint piece in the Sacramento Bee about how Obama's pledge on CEO salaries has gone out the window like most of his pledges. So instead I'll go to the phone news section from the Humor Times, a couple of old pieces. Actually this one comes from Andy Borowitz. It was a poll from 2008 noting that Obama was faring poorly among racists. Subheadline was bigots opposed Barack by thousand to one margin. To that, I would add a piece uh, by uh, Humor Times special reporter James Israel after the Obama election. Headline was, Obama begins planning transition to socialism, comma, communism. And final item from the second comes from our archives, piece from the Week magazine, statistical piece from January of last year, which noted that Somali pirates had grown bolder. In the first half of 2011, there were 163 attacks compared with just 100 during the same period the year before. And the pirates, this this is rather astonishing, the pirates were banking an average of $5.4 million per ship in 2010, compared with just $150,000 per ship in 2005. For all we know, Goldman Sachs is already investing in cigarette boats and AK-47s. Thank you.
Anyway, let's take a short break and talk about some curious predictions made over a century ago. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Stay tuned. Money, 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 money. Money. 